1: This is The Guardian.
2: Hello and welcome to Save for Later from Guardian Australia, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains just can't close. I'm Michael Sun.
3: And I'm Alex Gorman. Today on the show, we're talking controversy and crystals set in the alternative reality of Byron
1: Bay. After she signed up and there was all the backlash, she was really like, oh my God, have I ruined my life by going on this show? Is everyone going to hate me now? Like, what have I done? Have I made a huge mistake? But first, Michael,
3: I want to talk to you about my greatest viral grievance.
2: I love your grievances, Alex.
3: So this grievance is a mega TikTok trend with billions of views. It is videos of people harvesting fast food workers for content by ordering viral but incredibly complex drinks, overstuffed burritos and pulling pranks at the drive-thru. Basically just doing everything except allowing the workers they're talking to to just normally do their jobs.
2: I have been a witness to this deeply... Deeply haunted genre of video. I will admit that I haven't actually seen them on TikTok. I've seen them on Twitter. But there is one video specifically that replays in my mind like a nighttime terror. It's a video of this like incredibly white family who go into a dairy queen in the US and they perform like an a cappella, what I would say like a glee-esque rendition of their order. Where they're like, Ice cream, vanilla.
0: Ice cream. Ice cream. cream. Strawberry. Ice, Ice, Ice cream. Ice
2: cream. And then the person just looks Ice so cream. deeply Ice bored. Cream. Pretty. Please. At the end of their song, there's just like silence. There's like no <laughs> one's clapping. There's like very little reaction. Yeah.
3: Oh, in fact, I think the poor guy had to ask them to repeat their order, not in a cappella format.
2: (laughs) And, like, they are about five seconds away from quitting their job on the spot.
3: But they are not alone, and frankly, I think the videos of people singing their orders are almost the most innocuous versions of this trend.
2: I don't know about that. Broadway has a lot to pay for. Ben Platt must pay for his crimes.
3: So many people use their takeaway orders and use service workers as props to make their viral videos. And in the last week alone, I have seen five separate news stories about different TikTokers either doing fast food stunts or Fast food workers doing TikToks kind of talking about the ways in which customers and their ridiculous stunts are imperiling their jobs or just making every day a little bit worse. Particularly Starbucks is a place where this happens a lot. So the hashtag Starbucks drinks on TikTok has 1.7 billion views. I am going to be trying viral TikTok Starbucks drinks. I see them all over TikTok. They get, like, so many likes, so many views. And it's often people making these incredibly elaborate orders at Starbucks of Mm. these, like, very kind of specific drinks and then filming baristas while they work. Starting off, we have chai. Peppermint, toffee nut, hazelnut caramel, cinnamon dulce, vanilla, sugar-free vanilla, sugar-free cinnamon dulce, marshmallow, honey, and raspberry syrup. Even worse are... Drive through pranks.
0: Are you ready? We are at McDonald's and we have a thing that we do. Hey, do you know what?
3: So, the hashtag drive through on TikTok has 3.8 billion views. And so often it's like some creator who thinks that they're funny doing a prank with service workers, like driving through and trying to order something from a different brand's menu, like basically just aggrieving them a bit for. Mm. The Lols.
2: Do you speak Spanish?
3: Yes,
1: can
3: Okay, cool. Can I get a number six?
1: You just asked me if I speak Spanish, for no reason.
3: Basically, but can I get number six? Or requesting like the most elaborate order and then filming the poor worker. We're gonna get
2: started for you. Hi, it's the Invisible boatmobile. Don't freak out. Can I just get a grande cold brew with a semi
1: couplet? Absolutely, you can. Okay, that's it.
2: So I feel like Starbucks, especially that you mentioned, I think Starbucks occupies almost a very specific place in the online viral trend history where I feel like, you know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were seeing all these viral posts being like, here's how to order from the Starbucks secret menu. You can ask your, your Starbucks brister to to like add this and this and this and this and this. And then I feel like there was even discourse a decade ago around Brists being like, we're annoyed, stop asking us to make this stuff. Like it takes so much time and it's so stressful when you have like a line of 50 customers. But this is... Next level. This is like more than just people asking for specific audits. It's actually... Um, turning this unwitting retail hospitality worker into an unwilling actor in their stunt? So
3: the one thing that is a ray of hope in this, because it's entirely true that it's kind of typically turning un- service workers into props, Starbucks baristas are taking the power back and kind of actually making content around what it feels like to work in that place and showing just what a super long, super specific order can do to muck up their day or just making fun of some of the like more annoying and inane requests that customers are making and frankly the content that is coming from the baristas themselves is so much funnier and so much more (laughs) insightful.
2: What are the baristas saying?
3: So one of my favorites that came out like only a few days ago was just a supercut of every single person working in a single Starbucks making the same request for a stirring stick in different voices of like how their customers make that request. (laughs)
1: Can I have a stopper? Can I have a stopper?
3: Can I get a stir stick? I maintain that everyone is allowed to complain about their jobs, but also as a customer, it's just helpful to know the stuff that you're pulling that is making someone's life harder.
2: And also, it's entirely valid to want to quit and also hate your job. Yeah, a hundred percent. Especially
3: if. It's a service industry role. Like you're clearly just doing it to make ends meet and pay the rent. Like
2: I do feel like there has almost been an uprising of of the service industry on TikTok, as you've said. I've also seen videos um, just floating around where it was like me trying to kill the customer with with only my mind. <laughs> and it was like people like staring viciously into the camera. And I'm like, that's such a common sentiment when you're like when you're working in a minimum wage role, you just like every <laughs> like I wish all customers a happy die.
3: Yeah, my absolute favourite of that is um, the angry Ikea guy who has Mm -hmm. developed a really big following for his his extremely funny videos where he says, like, oh, you're never going to shop at Ikea again. I don't care at all.
0: I'm telling all my friends not to shop here. Tell them. You think I want five other yous running around the store? Have them call me. I'll tell them this place more than me, I work here.
2: It also um, reminds me of there was another widely criticized trend of families or I guess like homeowners in these like extremely wealthy suburbs putting a camera on their door and then also a sign to their Amazon or food delivery workers being like, oh, like, do a dance and then leaving a substantial tip for them to collect once they'd done their dance. And it was this deeply cursed thing where it was quite obvious that these workers, you know, number one, needed the tip, number two, felt... I, if I was a worker in that situation, I would feel absolutely, like, threatened and forced into dancing because who knows what the, what the retribution is going to be, like, if you don't comply with this seemingly innocuous order on the front door of the house you're delivering to. Like, it's just this weird power play almost where people think they're doing such a good deed, but it just feeds into the existing hierarchy between, you know, like, orderer and deliverer.
3: I am an ex-service worker. I was a checkout chick. I worked retail for years. And this was long before TikTok and kind of viral video content. And there was so much unpleasant stuff that you had to field from customers, from like teenage boys doing pranks who thought that they were funny to low-grade sexual harassment to people getting really, really frustrated and taking it out on you when it was absolutely a decision that was out of your hands. Like what drives me crazy about all of these videos and their popularity is that at least with kind of old media, there are things like release forms. You have to actually say, yes, it's all right to film me and you can use this footage when you're going to appear in something, unless it's of serious news or public interest. But with this kind of everything is content approach, I don't think that there are any ethics around whether or not that person wants to be filmed. These workers could be underage, they could be DV victims, and you've just revealed the location of their workplace. Like, There are so many ethical issues around putting someone on camera when you already have an audience Mm. without them agreeing to it and without them being okay about it that I don't think are being considered at all by, like, the many, many creators who think that fast food is a fun and relatable way to get TikTok shares.
2: It's also just, like, a really gross manifestation of like main character energy on TikTok as well, where it's that sense that everyone in your life exists solely to serve your own narrative. And it's this complete and willful ignorance that everyone else's lives are completely like, like they're not thinking about you at any point in their lives. And you've just literally turned them into a side character in your own grand narrative. And it's this very it's this very selfish and individualistic way of thinking.
3: Next, is the clag pot calling the glue stick tacky? We're talking about Byron Bay's.
0: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST.
2: After months of controversy, months of pushback from locals, from every single element imaginable, it's finally here.
1: Moving somewhere new is scary. I don't know a soul in Byron Bay.
2: I'm coming to Byron Bay to make some new friends. I am obsessed with your dress. The show Byron Bay, is the Netflix reality show, show (laughs) set in as Alex so eloquently put it, the alternative universe that is Byron Bay itself, featuring a potpourri of wealthy, young, quote-unquote, influencers, and here to talk about it, a very special guest today who's going to be taking us inside Byron Bay's, Katie Cunningham. Hello!
1: Hi, thank you for having me here to talk about this truly delightful show.
2: Katie, you're a freelance writer, Guardian contributor, reality TV stan, um, and you're here to explain to us all the controversy, or the crystals, or the drama of this show, I do want to just quickly say that this is like the first time I've had to use the word bay as in BAE, since <laughs> the year 2012. I think that is a common experience for the thousands of people who are currently watching this show.
3: It is very 2012, doll.
2: <laughs> like, it almost feels like a very retro TV show. But before we get into all of that, it's Stayed in the Netflix top 10, there's been so much talk over the past 11 months leading up to its release. Katie, take us through the actual timeline of controversies here. Like, it has been marred with scandal after scandal.
1: Yeah, it's been a rocky road to um release date. So, pretty much as soon as Byron Bays* was announced by Netflix last year, it was met with this really... Really significant and quite well organized backlash from Byron locals who just really didn't want the show to happen. So, there was a petition that came out calling on Netflix to scrap the plans. A few prominent local businesses announced they weren't going to let Netflix film in their premises. And in very Byron style, there was an ocean paddle out (laughs) to protest this as well. Byron is experiencing this really, really bad housing crisis and homelessness crisis at the moment. And so, along with the ocean paddle outs and everything you had a lot of prominent locals like members of the indigenous community and the Byron Shire mayor and some local politicians coming out and saying hey like we don't really want this reality show coming in and glamorizing you know the the wealthy residents of this town at the expense of its more vulnerable and kind of papering over the fact that Byron has these really extreme social issues at the moment. And then also with that concerns that, you know, if this glitzy reality show comes out and shows off how amazing Byron is, then potentially more people are going to come to the town when there's already not enough housing for the people who live there at the moment.
2: Yeah, it feels like it was this really um, strange conflict in that, on one hand, the points that were being made about the Byron community were... Correct and interesting points about, like, gentrification and this kind of culture where influences and the elite are coming in and changing the nature of Byron and making it so that people who have lived there for decades can't actually afford houses, etc, etc, etc. But then on the other hand, people from Byron are, are, are freaking annoying. Like... <laughs> The paddle out demonstrates that, I feel. Yeah. So there was a real kind of, like, tension in the protests and conflict leading up to the show. Now I've actually seen comments on the Netflix page as well when they were, like, um, kind of announcing that that the show was coming out and even on some of the promo posts for the show, a lot of people were actually talking about the recent floods as well um, and the kind of insensitivities there that Netflix hasn't actually addressed or done anything.
3: Yeah, The timing couldn't really be worse in terms of the release date because Mm. it came out last Wednesday as the Northern Rivers were in the midst of a truly horrific flooding crisis that's only going to exacerbate the very real problems that the community were concerned about more.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. I obviously have gone and followed many of the bees on Instagram (laughs) since the show came out and their stories right now are like, you know, one slide is a clip from the show of them like having a fight with another chick and then the next one is like some call out to Skomo about the devastation in Lismore and it's just like really jarring (laughs) Um, contrast. Well, this is something
3: that I found fascinating about the show when the cast was announced and then watching the show come out as well is that... There is a huge sort of group of people with very big social media followings in Byron Bay and several of them, the Byron Bay Murphers, were the subject of a pretty explosive Vanity Fair, Fly on the Wall profile piece a few years ago that was completely mesmerising and I suspect part of the inspiration for this series. But none of the people, like I'm thinking of Ruby Tuesday here, who you would associate with the Byron Bay kind of explosive social media scene, Um, the fashion label Spell and the Gypsy Collective as another example who have an audience of millions of followers on Instagram. They're not in the show and, in fact, Spell specifically said that they refused to be filmed for the show. So many of the things that you'd associate with Byron influencer culture are not present. A lot of the people in the show had the same number of Instagram followers as I did when they came in so that's that's changed now I think but it is funny that when the show first came out it was pitched as being about influencer culture but the cast were very staunch that they were not influencers they're artists creatives entrepreneurs but then you look at their social figures and you go oh
1: yeah no they aren't influencers Mm. they're not influencers they're inspirers Alex (laughs) (laughs)
2: they're famously quote-unquote on a spiritual journey is i believe the actual (laughs) phrase that was used once the show had backtracked from just being about this like glossy influencer look um but there is at least one person on the show who is perhaps a bona fide influencer um almost i would say like a universally beloved figure on the show, Jade Kevin Foster, who claims to be the most followed male influencer in Australia. There are a lot of influencers in Byron at the moment, and as the number one most followed male influencer of Australia, I need to surround myself with like-minded people. Potentially a dubious claim that is addressed by the show itself.
3: But crucially, not from Byron.
2: Crystal Castles is very Byron. Let's have a walk around. And it's definitely a lot different to what I ever experienced in the Gold Coast.
1: Oh, my God. It's a dragon egg.
2: A what? A dragon egg.
3: So it's probably worth explaining that the central tenant of Byron Bay's is that two people from outside of Byron, one of whom is Jade Kevin Foster, move there for the location's kind of reputation for fostering creativity and then it follows their various mostly romantic travails after they've arrived
2: it's kind of through jade's storyline though that i think the show deals really explicitly with influencer culture and its pitfalls um i mean n- not to spoil anything but but be- but there is a major storyline in the show, of course, about Jane Kevin Foster getting into some beef with another character. I always call them characters, but they're definitely people. Um, Are they? This- <laughs> exactly. That's the question we should be asking. <laughs> with another character called Alex, who's, a, who's like a talent scout slash talent agent, um, and Alex has accused Jane Kevin Foster of faking the number of followers he has by buying lots of followers from overseas, specifically Turkey and Iran. It's a storyline in this series katie what is your expert opinion about this like do do we who, whose side are we on here
1: yeah well i think it's worth putting into context like how many followers 1.2 million is on instagram like that's a huge amount so for reference lara worthington need bingle very famous australian i looked up her instagram this morning she has 1 million followers uh No shade to Jade. I had not heard of him before he came on this show and he has 1.2 million followers. So you can probably draw your own conclusions there about whether that number stacks up. But, yeah, it's a really touchy subject in the show because Alex, this other castmate, yeah, accuses him of having bought these fake followers.
2: The game is up. We can see everything. Okay, so his top audience, so where he has the most followers is Turkey, with 451,000 of 1.2 million. And Jade completely
1: blows up about this and, you know, it's like his whole identity is wrapped up in these these followers, so it's like the worst thing anyone could possibly say to him, even though, you know, (laughs) pretty weird to have 200,000 followers in Iran. (laughs) Where did they come from? (laughs) <laughs> if
2: you've done your research into me properly, you'd realise that I've travelled the whole entire world and I've worked my fucking ass off to get to where I am. So if you're going to go now as a talent manager and question me and my authenticity...
3: So on the show, Jake denies that his followers are bored and says that he has an international audience. And to be fair, his aesthetic actually is much more in line with influences from that region than a typical Australian bloke. So it's not completely implausible.
2: I'm also quite into the backstory um, with Jade Kevin Foster which is only referenced via, like, one throwaway comment on the show um, where where Alex is like, you know, I know the whole Kim Kardashian story. But this is a person who actually initially got famous because he just went to a meet and greet with Kim Kardashian. She happened to notice his photo out of all the thousands of other photos taken that day, shared his photo, and then he woke up overnight with, like with like a huge influx of followers and has leveraged (laughs) that into a apparently 1.2 million Mm. follower career that has culminated in a starring role in this show. Mm. I do respect that hustle.
3: Katie, you actually spoke to one of the castmates for Guardian Australia. I'm wondering how they're feeling about sort of the show coming out and the climate in which it's coming out.
1: Yeah. Well, I spoke to Hannah, who's one of the core cast members just before it had come out and she is someone who's lived in Byron for I think 12 years now and was saying she's was quite afraid of the show coming out and that you know after she signed up and there was all the backlash she was really like oh my god have I ruined my life by going on this show is everyone gonna in Byron gonna hate me now like what have I done have I made a huge mistake um so it was quite nerve-wracking for her but I think she also felt like, you know, her intentions were pure and she only wanted to showcase a Byron lifestyle and wasn't trying to make the town look bad or anything. So also hoped that the show coming out would would ease those doubts that a lot of locals had about it.
2: Do we feel like this show has sufficiently addressed the concerns that were raised by locals? Do we feel like it's only going to anger them further? Where do we stand on this?
1: Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I haven't heard of any... More pushback from locals since it's come out hating it. That doesn't mean that it hasn't happened.
2: No, I feel like one of the reasons for that, maybe, like when I first watched the first few episodes, it almost felt like it was strangely light on actual drama and, like, all the kind of mechanics you would expect from a really glitzy and glamorous reality TV show. Like, like it's not Real Housewives by any standard. And I think Patrick Lenton, in his review for of Australia, actually described it as slow TV, <laughs> um, which is something that, that I think me and Alex both picked up on when we were watching the show. We were like, why is nothing happening? Like, why is this almost mumblecore?
1: Yeah, so when I started watching the first episode... I think I just immediately was delighted by it. Like by the time that episode finished, I realized my face genuinely hurt because I'd been grinning the whole time I was watching it. Like it was just very amusing and entertaining. And yeah, it was the kind of reality TV that we actually don't seem to have a lot of in Australia, which is just, just people just hanging out, which is heaps of that kind of reality TV abroad. But in Australia, all our big shows are more competition-based like MasterChef or dating reality shows like The Bachelor and stuff. And we don't have, we haven't really had just hot people hanging out and I I like watching hot people hang out.
2: It's all very low stakes, I feel. Um, and even the drama itself, a lot of it revolves around just this very inane, he said, she said. Alex, I know that you had a favourite example of this.
3: Oh, my gosh. There were so many examples of this, but... I think the the entire show is basically just ricocheting between people talking about how other people are talking about them behind each other's backs.
1: You told Sarah that I had some sort of... And
3: my absolute favourite moment in the from place. the show that demonstrates yeah. this is all of the girls on the cast are at a paint therapy workshop together and it devolves into a screaming match over which cast member is more two-faced.
1: You are two-faced. I'm not two-faced. You are. You are. You are. And I just don't want to associate myself with that
2: anymore. Like, I think because this show is so low stakes, we get so many of these scenes where the weirdest things are elevated to the stuff of high drama. What is one of your favourites?
1: I mean, there's so many, but one is when there's these two guys who are kind of in this love triangle with Sarah, this new girl in town, having an argument because one of the guys has told Sarah that the other one is a fuckboy and that she should stay away from him.
2: How you been? Yeah, mate. Look, we're friends, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got your back and apparently, well, supposedly you have mine. I exhibition,
1: right? And he's like, if I'm a fuckboy, then why are you my friend? And, and just like this whole scene about whether or not he's a fuckboy and the issue of fuck boy denialism and can you be promiscuous <laughs> without being a fuck boy? and, you know, it's really deep I stuff.
2: She asked me a direct question and she goes, my initial read with Nathan that it was a bit of a fuck boy." and she's like, is he? And I was like, yeah, he is, like, he's promiscuous.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Like, you are by nature since I've known you.
3: I actually did, from a kind of almost feminist perspective, love that the story about people, like a friendship breaking up and people backstabbing each other over a
1: romantic partnership was two boys having that fight. Mm.
2: And that's woke and that's on representation.
1: Another one of my favourite moments is at Elle's mermaid party to save the barrier reef. And the scans that STAB is taking today will be used to turn me into a life-size mermaid sculpture. Me being scanned as a mermaid will bring about more conscious attention to saving our coral reefs. She is telling Jade about her her mission. So many people all over the world refer to me as sunshine. I can help shift the consciousness of people all around me. About coral bleaching, and he's like, "Oh, is that because really? people pour bleach into the ocean?" of coral bleaching. No. Do we have any kind of coral bleaching? W- from, of from
0: people
2: past- pouring bleach in. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think in like in Jade's part, it's because he's definitely playing into this whole. Um, I'm so dumb. I know nothing. Like, like it's a it's a really likable role because. It's so, so, so funny, and there's an insult that he uses later in the season where he's like, oh, he's so smart, he must have finished year 12. (laughs) He
1: uses that multiple times as well, like, that's his compliment. (laughs) He has a complex about it. (laughs)
2: I'm just really proud of him for changing my mind throughout the entire season. When in episode one, I was like, "I was like, gross, white gays, we get it." And then by episode seven, I was like, "I was like, this is such a good parody of a white gay. Like, (laughs) I'm so on (laughs) board."
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is something that's interesting about Byron Bay's is that generally with reality TV, people go on because they want to get famous from it but you can never say that that's why you're going on a show. Like if you're going on the bachelor, you have to be like, no, I'm here for love. I'm looking for a partner when really you just want to get some Instagram followers so you can become the next Savvy Chatfield and, you know, propel that into a bigger media career. But with Byron Bay's, it's like that, like artifice isn't there. Like you can kind of just pretend you can just say like, yeah, I'm a budding Instagram influencer and I'm, you know, I'm here to get more famous and there's no pretense
3: around it except of course the elephant in the room is that they never address the idea that they're on a tv show at all which leads to this really insane artifice you know in a competition reality show there's a lot of kind of meta discussion of why people are here there's like that very famous like I'm not here to make friends reality trope that Byron Bays completely reverses as one of the kind of main cast members says I'm here yeah. to make friends but The fact that they are a disparate group, some of whom maybe loosely knew each other before, but who are very clearly and artificially together for the creation of a TV show, the fact that they need to have a weekly small gathering with some castmates and a weekly large gathering with all castmates pegged around various events. All of these things that are clearly structures put in place purely to create a reality television show are never addressed or discussed. No one talks about the fact that they're on a show on this show, which feels insane to me since that's what they're all doing there.
2: I think my theory is that they're just all terrible, terrible at acting. I feel like unlike on some of the later seasons of The Real Housewives where everyone is so good at like performing and like scripting their own lines they can easily get away with being like we're just a group of friends like a new person's joining our friend group I feel like these people are <laughs> so bad at reading lines and especially in the first few episodes you get some shockingly wooden line readings where it'll be like so Nathan you mm-hmm. went on a date with Sarah tell me how that was mm-hmm. like it's, re- it's uncanny valley stuff how bad they are
1: I mean I think that kind of artificial setup is just kind of what you have to accept with any reality tv show right like you kind of just swallow it and you're like this makes no sense and this is ridiculous but it's going to lead to some drama so i will i'm here for it
3: the other thing that's so glaringly absent from the show that like adds to this layer of like complete parallel universism is that they talk constantly about the difference between the Gold Coast and Byron Bay (laughs) and one of the characters' deliberations about whether or not she should go back to the Gold Coast, which is like crazy because they're an hour's drive away. But also the show was presumably being filmed during the COVID pandemic and potentially when there was a hard border between New South Wales and Queensland (laughs) that although if you're a borderland resident it was a bit easier to cross like That was like a genuine impediment to maybe going home, but there is not a single mention of a pandemic on Byron Bay. Like
1: it, it's like it takes place in a world where COVID just didn't happen. But I think that's what TV should do. I can't stand watching TV and having COVID pop up in it. It's like no, I am watching this to escape and not think about the horrible real world. So thank you for not including it.
3: Yeah, ultimately, (laughs) I think the fact that this show doesn't exist in the real world in any way that it's so vacuous and so silly combined with all the media attention that the protests against it got actually ends up underscoring what the community was saying in the first place when you watch the show because it's inviting you to stalk the cast and the town on social media you see the backlash immediately the second you Google Byron Bays so even though the show isn't explicitly critical in any way it makes the criticism super easy to find and ends up drawing way more attention to the issues than they might otherwise have gotten. So the protests against the show and the show itself kind of act as a double-edged sword, or I guess a two-faced one. Katie, we're kidnapping you. You're not off the hook yet. We're actually going to ask you to stick around for a segment we call Top of the List. Michael, you're up first. What's top of your list this week?
2: My top of the list arm um, is actually a song by an artist called Cassandra Jenkins called Hard Drive. Um, this is a song that combines all of my least favourite genres. I'm talking like fusion jazz, improv, <laughs> spoken word. It's just like genres that, that, that immediately incite like a stroke within your brain.
3: Right, so Michael, why are you recommending this?
2: Because she makes it work so well And I was, like, gobsmacked on first listening to it It was, um, it was one of the top songs in Pitchfork's list last year And I was like, whatever, I'm not going to hear it And then for some reason I dug it up again And it's this, like, beautiful meditation on, like, destiny and fate But then also this kind of like, cynicism towards spirituality And, like, finding signs in the universe It's, it's this, like, really weird spoken word track um, that, that name checks everyone from, like, a celebrity astrologist um, to Lola Kirk, and it's just a gorgeous five-minute sprawling epic. It's called Hard Drive. Um, also contains one of like the best puns I've heard in a song so far. It's like hard drive, the USB, but also a literal rocky road.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful, Michael. I tried to listen to that song and I was like, this goes for 10 minutes. I'm too bored. I can't be bothered. Sorry.
2: (laughs) I think it's because I discovered it in a state of deep melancholy and I was like, I can't turn it off right now. I just need to keep it going. Um, Alex, what's your top of the list?
3: My top of the list this week is a TV show by Adam McKay called Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. And I like it for the same reason that some people will probably hate it, which is it is peak Adam McKay. So... He is the director of The Big Short, and if all of the really knowing, winky pieces to camera that are super over the top in The Big Short annoyed you, like, this show is absolutely loathsome. But I eat that for breakfast, and so even though I'm not a huge sports fan... A story about the rise of the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s at the kind of like directed by a man named Jerry Buss, who's played by John C. Riley, with um Quincy Azyre as Magic Johnson, is just a complete treat for me because it's just a huge group of total hams doing truly delightful late 70s, early 80s aesthetic and It also has Solomon Hughes playing an incredibly authentically grumpy Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and those moments are just the
1: greatest because he's so funny and so over it.
2: Katie, it's time for your top of the list.
1: Yeah, well, I went to the movies last week for the first time in ages because that's been the thing that I've been too afraid to do uh, in the pandemic, and I saw the new Paul, I'm not going to say his name, Paul Verhoeven movie called Benedetta, which is about these I guess, queer nuns in this monastery in Europe in the whatever, ages ago, Um, and it's just really great and combines, you know, like hot sex scenes with Catholic imagery and freaky violence from it's like three of my favourite things, so I was super into it.
2: Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, you should absolutely subscribe to Save for Later wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And if you're nice about it, you can even leave us a review.
2: This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also handcrafted the music. Exec produced by Miles Martignoni and Steph Harmon.
3: We'll be back next week talking about all of the things that have made our computers crash and also our minds.